Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're looking at verses 1 through 4. This morning. And while you're turning there, I'll read this quote from a, a book that I, I enjoyed reading probably a decade ago or maybe a little less than that, but it came out a decade ago. In his book, The Shallows, Nicholas Carr writes about the internet and how it's changing the way we think. Um, I can't remember the subtitle. I should have written it down, but it's called The Shallows, so it gives you an idea of what he thinks about the internet. Um, it's based on an article he wrote, I believe, uh, for the Atlantic that was uh, how Google is, is making us dumb. Um, but here's the, the quote from the book. Neuroscientists and psychologists have discovered that even as adults, our brains are very plastic. They're very malleable. They adapt at the cellular level to whatever we happen to be doing. And so the more time we spend surfing and skimming and scanning, that's online, the more adept we become at, the mo at that mode of thinking. And so as uh, our mind is, is actually rewiring, our brain is rewiring to think based upon kind of our activity online, which if you're like everyone else in society today, you spend a lot of time online scanning and clicking and skimming and not spending a whole lot of deep thought on what you're reading. And so wisdom is associated with deep concentration. Scholarly intellectuals, as well as really any knowledge worker, anyone who works in like the field of education is a knowledge worker. It requires significant periods of the day that are devoted to thinking, reading, and processing information, just, just mentally absorbing what you're thinking about, what you're reading. And they must learn to overcome the seduction of this distracted age which is always pushing against that. And I think that's true of Christians in general, right? The, that we are called to meditate upon God's word, Psalm 91, verse 2, meditate on it day and night. We're called to think about what honors the Lord in Philippians 4, 8. You have a whole list of things to think about, what's lovely and good and pure, true. And then Romans 12, 2 says that we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So our minds are important to God. The way we think what we think about is crucial to the way we grow as believers. And the argument of the author of Hebrews wraps up the case that he's been making in chapter 1, that Christ is superior, and then in the latter part of that, verses 5 through 14, is that Christ is specifically superior to angels. And then he opens this second chapter with the word, therefore. So you know it's an important connection. Right? Therefore, because of what I've just said in chapter 1, that Christ is superior to angels, we must pay closer attention to the message that we have heard about him. And so we've, we've heard about this superior Christ. We've heard the gospel proclaimed to us. And now we must pay much closer attention to that message. So that's how the author opens um, his argument here in Hebrews 2, and um, right, he states it positively, pay much closer attention. But then he goes on, really, uh, for verses 2 and 3 to, to state it negatively. Right? That he can, 
he can make the, the same point, but it's, it's um, well, it's, it's listed there as do not neglect, right? We sh- how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The idea is, is if you don't pay attention, the opposite of paying attention is neglecting, right? Being unconcerned, being indifferent. If we do that, then we're, how will we escape judgment? So we'll talk about, about that, this positive component and this negative component. The idea is that we would drift away from the message we've heard if we begin to neglect it or to be unconcerned about it. And so I put the, the main idea there in a negative way, right? Professing Christians will not escape God's judgment if they neglect the gospel by their indifference. Again, that word neglect that you find right in the center of this in Hebrews 1.3 is basically the opposite of pay attention. And so they could expect judgment if they lose interest in such a great salvation. That's how I would say, or if you, if you were to state it negatively there, you could, you could uh, say what is written there in your bulletin, right? That you will not escape God's judgment if you neglect the gospel by your indifference. But you can also make it positively. Those who keep their focus on the gospel will never be in danger of drifting away from it. And so however you want to look at it, both one is, is terrifying and the other is encouraging, right? But both of them are important. Those who keep their focus on the gospel will never be in danger of drifting away from it. So let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for what it has to teach us. And Lord, we come in need of your instruction. And some of us do need to be convicted because we have drifted along. And we have not been maybe taking our faith seriously, taking your word seriously. We have not kept our focus on the gospel. And Lord, we come uh, cold. We come with just an indifference about things and maybe maybe we would blame others for that maybe we point to certain aspects of uh, the way others have have treated us or related to us and we haven't taken the time to really consider our own heart in the matter lord help us to to take ownership when we have begun to wander but to recognize, Lord, that, that you are calling us back. And may this message, may this sermon be a means of that for some. Or that they would hear your voice. And they would return to the comfort and the protection and the guidance of their good shepherd. And Lord, for others of us, we, we, we need to be built up and encouraged to stay the course. To keep our focus and our attention um, with, with every fiber of our being to, to do whatever we can to maintain that focus. And as we go, grow tired and weary of this world and we want to relax and, and, and coast and drift along, remind us with this passage, Lord, how important it is that we, we continue to strive, we continue to make every effort, Lord, to honor you with our lives. And so, Lord, may we be built up and encouraged, equipped, to do just that as we give you glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.
So read with me Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in your outline, the first point is that this is a message that's worthy of our attention. A message worthy of our attention. We'll spend the bulk of our time in this, this section, verses 1 through 3a. It really goes all the way down to the, the question that's asked in the first part of 3. And then we'll pick up with the latter section um, really as a conclusion to the message. But a message that's worthy of our attention. The problem here among this community was not so much that these believers were actively rebelling against the gospel. It wasn't like they were coming out and saying, I reject what I heard. I reject what Jesus, what has been proclaimed to me about Jesus's death and resurrection. They're not actively doing that, but they were losing focus. They were beginning to allow their minds to, to just drift along, to drift away to other things, or at least that's the temptation that they're under. That's the warning that the author of Hebrews is giving them. They were in danger of neglecting the gospel due to their indifference. And it's not to say that they're indifferent about everything, right? That they're just staying at home and, and paying attention to nothing. They're giving their attention to something, but it's no longer the gospel. That's no longer the central theme of their lives or their focus. And so they were drifting away, or the word literally has to do with just kind of flowing along in, in, in a body of water. I just allowing the current to take you along instead of uh, standing firm, right? They're, they're kicking up their feet and, and, and sliding along with the crowd. Drifting takes no effort at all. It's like laying on your surfboard in the ocean. Right? If, if, you, if you just do that and let the ocean take you where, you, where it wants to take you, it's going to pull you miles away uh, from where you started. You have to continually take note of that. And when, we're, when we go to the ocean every year, we, we're always paying attention to the kids because, you know, about a, 30 minutes after them getting into the water, we're calling out to them because they're too far. <laughs> they've, they've gone too far away. Uh, the water has just drifted, uh, taken them along that way. Um, the author of Hebrews here is encouraging his readers to pay better attention to the message of salvation that they had heard that if they don't, they will drift away from the gospel. If they lose their focus, they'll begin to drift along with the culture. And throughout the rest of this chapter, the author will continue to support his case, that, that Christ is superior to the angels. Right here, however, his concern is about the content of that message. It's what was declared First of all, by the angels, and then what's declared by the Lord. And so what is the message that was declared by the angels? What does he have in mind here? 
as he speaks of in, in um, verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. What's, what's the message that he has in mind? Well, it seems to be a reference not to the angelic proclamation of Christ's birth. That might be your initial thought here, but it's actually a, a reference to the law. It's a reference to how the law came to the Israelites. Uh, you have a reference to this in Deuteronomy 33.2, but it's pretty, um, you know, when you're reading the narrative, you have Moses on the top of the mountain. There's no mention of angels being present. It's, it sort of gives the impression that God is just speaking directly to Moses and gives him the commandments, and then he passes them on, right, to the people. But there is a reference as Moses himself in Deuteronomy is reflecting upon what took place. He talks about the host, the heavenly host that were there, right, in verse 33. Uh, Deuteronomy 33.2. And you have a similar idea in Psalm 68.17. This idea that there's, an, there's a host of angelic beings who are, who are accompanying God as he, as he delivers his revelation uh, to Moses. This belief is then emphasized throughout rabbinic teaching. You have um, the Book of Jubilees talks about this explicitly. You have in the first century... Um, Jewish writers Philo and Josephus also talk about this, the idea that angels received the law and passed it on um, or were present there, passing it along to the people. It's also something that you find in the New Testament. Uh, Stephen mentions this in Acts chapter 7, verse 53. It's the sermon that gets him killed right before he's stoned to death. He mentions the angels' presence and, and their role in delivering the law. Galatians 3.19, uh, Paul speaks of the same thing, teaching the Galatians about this idea. So it's, it's, it's not something we oftentimes think about in God's delivering of the law, but that is what is, it's a biblical concept. And so the author devotes the rest of this section to supporting the need to pay closer attention. And his argument is this, if Jesus is superior to the angels, and if what the angels declared was completely reliable, that the law was true and good, and it was reliable. And then if every disobedience to the law received a just punishment, then we must take the message of the gospel all the more seriously. Right? So it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's talking about the argument that the, the message that was declared by the angels, if it was good and true and reliable and led to actual punishment for people, well, then the same thing is possible to a greater degree under the gospel. If the message of the law declared by inferior angels proved to be reliable, how much more reliable is the message of salvation declared by the superior Lord? Likewise, if every transgression was punished under an inferior old covenant, how much more will sin be punished under the superior new covenant? So putting the argument together, if the message gets better and clearer, then the judgment will be more severe. And you do find that in Jesus' own language. Right? If you reject the gospel, it'll be more, uh, you, you, the punishment will be more severe for you than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. And he tells the cities who, who rejected him. 
And so if the covenant community in the Old Testament was judged for their apostasy, how much more will we face judgment if we neglect such a great salvation? So this community will not escape judgment if they reject Jesus and return to Jerusalem. That's, that's really what he's saying. This is repeated and really extended in chapter 10. So move ahead with me to chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. I think this may be the last of the, the, the large warning passages. There's five major warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And so we're looking at the first one here in chapter 2. Here in chapter 10, I think, is the last one. Verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? All right, so these are, again, same covenant community. It's not like the letter trans started talking to someone else here. It's the same covenant community he's talking to, the same danger that he's talking about but he makes it even more explicit in chapter 10. So the judgment will increase in severity. It'll be worse punishment because they would be guilty of rejecting the most superior messenger. It was declared by the Lord. So coming back to this idea of, of, of attention, Cal, Cal Newport, he piggybacks off the phenomenon that Nicholas Carr described in the shallows that we opened with while Carr kind of diagnoses the problem of what the internet's doing to our brain Newport proposes some practical solutions and it's a good book deep work he argues that the distracted nature of our world will increasingly favor people who are able to prioritize deep work I think he makes a strong case but this kind of work can only take place in an undistracted environment that allows for extended periods of concentrated focus. So here's what he says. Once your brain has become accustomed to on-demand distraction, it's hard to shake the addiction even when you want to concentrate. To put this more concretely, if every moment of potential boredom in your life, say having to wait five minutes in line or sit alone in a restaurant until a friend arrives, is relieved by a quick glance at your smartphone, then your brain has likely been rewired to a point where it's not ready for deep work. Even if you regularly schedule time to practice this concentration. So what does this have to do with Hebrews 2? Well, if this community of believers in the first century needed to prioritize their attention better, and this world has only made our attention worse, right? the technology that we have, at our hands. And, and of course, I'm not disparaging technology. There's really a lot of great things that we have access to because of technology. But I think it's undeniable that it's changing the way we think and our ability to experience deep concentration. So if they had to prioritize paying attention much closer than they were, how much more do those of us who've grown up in the age of the internet and social media have to pay much closer attention? 
And so that's, that's the antidote. That's the response to this danger, this warning passage, right? This original audience, they would have been quite familiar with the guilt of their ancestors. They'd heard the stories about the wilderness generation, the grumbling and complaining, the, the, the kind of, right, fading away as, as we read here, or this drifting away from God. God had separated them from the world and given them special grace, but they lacked the gratitude that should have resulted from the favor that they were shown. Right? They were ungrateful throughout um, that wilderness generation. And we have to admit that the church in the West is oftentimes guilty of going with the flow. Our Christians have always been in the world, but we're called to stand apart from the world as well. In the world, but not of the world. And so there should be a contrast between the church and the world. There should be a contrast to what enamors us, what attracts the believer. Casually going with the flow, indifferent to the direction that it's heading, will quickly lead you and your family away from God. And that's, that's the warning. That, that beginning to grow indifferent, beginning to grow cold toward the things of God is going to lead you far away. From God and his purposes for you. It's not, it's not simply enough to just like uh, say, well, I, I believe and, you know, on occasion I, I take my family to church and we, we listen. And, and I, I don't reject that, right? I don't outright reject the gospel. That wasn't the danger here either on the surface. Casually going with the flow is going, to remove, is going to move you away from God. And so all types of meditation require the elimination of distractions, but Christian meditation is different right, than Eastern and mystical meditation where you're trying to eliminate what you're thinking about, trying to empty your mind. Christianity is about filling your mind, filling your mind with whatever honors God. And so we need to evaluate what's capturing our interest and pulling us away from thinking about what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, as Paul puts it in Philippians 4.8. Pay closer attention to the message of salvation that is revealed to you plainly in God's word. It's not enough to simply maintain faith if, if it's nothing more than kind of a casual indifference. As if opening your Bible is sort of just the thing you do before turning on the TV. Right? It's just another activity you do. It's not central. Right, the, if you want the, your family to maintain their focus on God, then the foundational support that you need needs to, right, the foundational support that anchors your faith is God's word. That needs to be central. And so our concern ought to be to deepen and to grow our maturity. And the Bible says that true wisdom, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 1, that true wisdom is found by keeping your undivided attention on Jesus Christ. This is how he says it in verses 21 through 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So when our hearts are stirred by the gospel, we will fight against the tide to remain there, right? To, to, uh, to just remain in this state of indifference. Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And there's an activity. It's not drifting. It's not coasting. And, and yet there is a sense. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, but doesn't Jesus say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light? And that is true. But what is a yoke for? I, I mean, is the yoke just like, a, like a, an air balloon that you kind of put around your neck and like, it kind of like lifts you up almost like a helium? No, right? it's, it's meant to be outworking, plowing, making effort, but you are yoked to your Lord and Savior who makes sure that you continue going. And when you start to trip on the ground to fall, he's the one there to pick you back up to dust you off and keep you moving. So there's plenty of illustrations we can give, right? The, the race is that we are running. It's, it's something that's, that's going to take energy, it's something that's going to take effort. But if we renew our strength in the Lord, then we can do that. We can run without being weary, and we can walk without fainting. All right, so that's the the warning and the explanation of, of the need to pay attention. Secondly, it's a, a message that was witnessed by extraordinary confirmation. And this is just a, a, to complement the, the value of the message. The gospel message was witnessed by extraordinary confirmation. So this covenant community in the Old Testament was punished because they grumbled and rebelled against God's provision of salvation from Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt, and then they immediately complained that they were in the wilderness, right? And while they neglected the message that was declared by angels through, you know, that was given to them uh, by Moses, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that this community of believers would be neglecting the message that was declared to them by the Lord at first, and then attested to by those who heard him and then delivered to them through those apostles. All right, so in the second half of verse 3, the author places himself among those who had not heard the Lord's message directly. It says, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard attested to us by those who heard. That means they didn't hear it from the Lord. He and, and the community he's writing to heard it from those who did hear it from the Lord. And so this is not an apostle that's writing the letter of Hebrews. Um, it's not also, it also would eliminate Paul uh, from the authorship. And I know we talked about this in the beginning, but here... Paul always affirms that he received his ministry directly from Jesus. You can see that in Acts 9. So this just is a confirmation that he is aligning himself with those who had not received it directly from Jesus. 
Now, God provides four kinds of witnesses in verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These four kinds of witnesses that confirm the message of salvation. So we're not going to take time to look at each one separately, but they're all miraculous works. They're all miraculous, and they occurred during Christ's ministry. That's described in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and if you read the Gospels, you'll see it. It continues in the apostolic age, so throughout the book of Acts, you see this miraculous activity taking place. But in, in all of it, it was meant to confirm the message and ministry of the apostles. That's what's explicitly stated here. God also bore witness by these things. He bore witness to the message that was proclaimed by Jesus, attested by the apostles. And so the miraculous gifts, we can argue, have ceased since the canon of Scripture was closed. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 2? In these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. In, In times past, he spoke to us and the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by the Son. John Calvin's commentary is helpful on this point, this idea of the the need for uh, miracles to confirm uh, the word of God. He says this, As to the word bearing witness or attesting, it points out the right use of miracles, even that they serve to establish the gospel. For almost all the miracles done in all ages were performed as we find for this end and that they might be the seals of God's word. The words according to his will remind us that the miracles mentioned could not be ascribed to any except to God alone, and that they were not wrought undesignedly, but for the distinct purpose of sealing the truth of the gospel. And so the reason why God God sent miracles, miracle workers, was in order to confirm the message that he was delivering, the special revelation. And so think about this. One of the primary examples we have in Scripture is of Moses. When Moses was told to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, he was commanded to go before Pharaoh and demand that he let them go. And he was terrified. But what does he request from God? He says, give me a sign in order to prove that you sent me. And so God gave him two miraculous signs. His staff would turn into a snake, and then he could put his hand into his cloak and pull it out, and it would be leprous, and then he could put it back in, and it would be clean. Both miraculous signs confirming that he was a messenger sent from God. There was a purpose for those miracles. And so that's just one example of God's purpose of miracles. You could go through all of them. But they're found in Scripture clustered around the delivery of new revelation. It always has to do with prophetic ministry, God delivering some new revelation to his people. And so the need for miraculous signs and wonders has ceased with the closing of the canon of Scripture. Now, I'm not suggesting by saying that that there's never any miracles that take place, that God never does anything miraculous anymore. But what I'm saying is that the need for people to have a confirming call to be miracle workers... To, to, to go out into a community and, and heal so that there can be some new revelation. That's, that's not necessary anymore because the canon is closed. Right? We have the word of God in its fullness before us, and we can read it. 
and we can study it and we can grow. We don't need a miracle worker to give us some new revelation. And if there is one, then I would send them directly to the hospital to do their miracles, right? And start healing people that are truly sick. And so the purpose of confirming new revelation is no longer needed. So let's just close with this reminder of what is this message that was declared. The professing Christians will not escape God's judgment if they neglect the gospel by their indifference. One of the ways that we combat that indifference to the gospel is by remembering who it was that declared it at first. And it said that the Lord declared it. It was declared at first by the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ left the riches of heaven and took upon himself the rags of humanity in order to provide a way of escape. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life that we could not live so that he might die the death that we deserved so that the way of escape from the wrath of God is available to all who place their faith in Christ alone for their salvation. That is justification. There's no effort in that. That is faith. Placing faith in the effort that Christ accomplished on your behalf. It is all of him and not of you. And that is the message that is delivered. And so the way of escape from the wrath of God is available to you when you place your faith in him. Receiving his message, though, will mean radical transformation of your priorities. Right? So the way you think changes. The things you think about changes. Your priorities and purposes will change. And indifference is simply not an option for those who have been struck by the weight of the glory of the gospel. That's the message that we need to pay much closer attention to whenever we're tempted to drift along with the culture. It might ease the tension to coast, but before we know it, we'll be miles from where we were. And so those who keep their focus on the gospel will never be in danger of drifting away from it. Let's ask the Lord for his help in doing that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder, this warning passage. It's, it's not always something that is comfortable for us to, to think about or to hear. It's just like children getting disciplined by their parents. It's not something we, we want to hear at all times but we need to hear it and if we've grown cold or indifferent to your word if we've grown cold or indifferent to your purposes in our lives in the lives of our family in this church lord we pray that you would bring us to repentance that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation that you would bring us around to recognizing the the radical call that the gospel has placed upon our lives or that we would give up the conveniences that are available to us lord in, in order to sacrificially serve others to put their needs above our own and to give of our resources to give to those who have none. These are, these are things that we can do with even an indifferent heart. We can even give and serve out of a cold 
just an external act. So Lord, this is a, this is a work that you must do. We cannot manufacture it. We cannot just tell ourselves to be, to be more serious, to be warmer. Lord, we need your spirit to guide us, to lead us to that place. And so help us to avail ourselves to the teaching of your word, to sit under its preaching often, to read it daily, to, to bring our petitions to you in prayer, and to stir us up in our relationship with our Savior, that we might commune with him. And even as we taste that in our, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, the end of the service, Lord, may that carry us throughout the week as we commune with you and in thought and in prayer, doing all things for you and for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, Come Thou Fount, hymn number 429.